Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Mary Beth Westerman, member of the AUA Residents and Fellows Committee, and I'd like to welcome you to the second podcast in a series especially for residents and young urologists. Today's episode features a panel discussion presented at the AUA 2018 Residents Forum about wellness, burnout, and sustaining your career in urology. The panelists are Dr. Amanda North from Montefiore Medical Center, Dr. Hadley Wood from Cleveland Clinic, and Dr. Deborah Leitner from Mayo Clinic. So before we start, um, I'm going to ask you all in the papers that you were given when you came in, you should have been given something that looks like this. This is the Maslach Burnout Inventory, and we're going to be talking about it. So the first thing I want you to do is to try not to write on this, because I want you to save it and take it home and use it to assess yourself over time. But find a scrap of paper and fill out your own Maslach Burnout Inventory. And we're going to talk about how to score it. But this is a resource for you to assess yourself um, from this day forward. And uh, the Residence Forum was kind enough to pay for you all to have this. It's a, a great resource. And so I really want you guys to take this home and hold on to it and uh, use it throughout your careers. All right. So I'm going to start talking about burnout while you all are doing that. And hopefully you can listen <laughs> and fill out the survey at the same time. So. I'm going to start by just talking about what burnout is and why you should care about it. So Dr. Herbert Freudenberger is um, generally acknowledged as the father of burnout. He was a New York psychologist. He left Nazi Germany um, as a child. His family sent him to New York by himself, where he became a really prominent um, psychologist. And he worked multiple jobs, including one where he took care of drug addicts down in the Bowery. And when he saw these drug addicts let their cigarettes burn to the end, he called that burnout. And he himself suffered from burnout and got to a point in his career where he literally couldn't get out of bed. Um, I heard a really interesting podcast where his daughter spoke about it. And he defined burnout as a state of mental and physical exhaustion caused by one's professional life. And we're sitting in a room with residents where burnout rates can be as high as 75%. So I'm sure some of you can relate to that. So what is burnout? It's a loss of enthusiasm for work. It's feelings of cynicism and a low sense of personal accomplishment. Why does it matter? We know that burnout is widespread, and it certainly begins in residency, but more and more we understand that it starts in medical school. And what we find is medical students start their first year all enthusiastic and optimistic and hopeful about the future, and by the time they're ready to graduate, many of them are already suffering from burnout. At my own institution, I teach a third-year medical student course where we meet months, once a month and talk about how their rotations are going. And one of the things that shocked me, as we just had our last session two weeks ago, was how much they had changed during the year. And they wrote their final papers on work-life balance. And I was surprised that even the most highest functioning of my medical students had really suffered during third year. And it really reinforced to me the impact that this is having on everyone. So doctors who are burnt out are at higher risk for making poor decisions, displaying hostile attitudes towards patients, making medical errors and being sued, and having difficult relations with coworkers. So I'm sure every single one of you has one attending who yells and screams in the operating room and can't get along with anyone. That's burnout. Also, as someone involved in some of the policy stuff that was just spoken about, we worry about the impact of burnout on workforce. 
burnt out doctors are likely to leave practice, leave medicine, and that's gonna cause bigger and bigger problems, um, especially if we don't get the extra residents training in urology that our policy people are fighting for. So this Maslach burnout inventory that you are all holding in your hands is a validated 22 item questionnaire. It's the research tool that's used to study burnout in the literature. And there are three subsections, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and a low sense of personal accomplishment. And if you score high in any of those subsections, you're considered to have burnout. When we look at the medical research, most studies only look at emotional exhaustion and depersonalization when they're defining burnout. But any of the three makes you burnt out. So what is emotional exhaustion? It's that feeling of being emotionally overextended and exhausted by one's work. It's when you come home from work and you just can't do anything. Depersonalization is an unfeeling and impersonal response to your patients. So I have a couple of my residents in the audience and what I tell them is when you start to refer to Mr. Smith in room 703B as the nephrectomy, instead of referring to him as that nice gentleman who's married, has three children and 10 grandchildren, and is a retired firefighter. When we lose a sense of who our patients are, I'm a pediatric urologist. When I start to refer to my patients as the next bedwetter I have to see, instead of as that adorable you know, little girl or little boy who likes to do whatever they like to do, when we stop thinking about our patients as people and start thinking about them as diseases or burdens that we have to take care of. And I think low personal accomplishment is pretty obvious, but it's feeling like what you do doesn't matter anymore. Being a doctor isn't important. You're not making a difference in people's lives. When in fact, what we do is really special and very important, and that's something for us to keep in mind. All right, so why does the AUA care about burnout? Well, back in 2014, uh, the Mayo Clinic, Clinic did a follow-up study to their 2011 study on burnout. And they found that doctors were more burnt out in 2014 than they had been in 2011. And um, that was pretty alarming. But more alarming is that urologists scored the worst of any specialty in burnout. So in 2014, they reported that 63% of urologists had burnout. Now this study was only based on 119 urologists, but in 2011 that number had been 43%. So it was a huge jump in urology burnout. And needless to say, the AUA was worried. The goal in urology, we all want the best and the brightest to join us. We think we have a great field, or at least I do. And if urologists are suffering so much, how are we gonna recruit the best medical students to come join our field? And so they added um, the Maslach burnout inventory to the 2016 AUA census. And so, um, by the way, please fill out your AUA census and continue to do so. We get really important data from it, and um, I would encourage everybody to do that if you haven't already. I got a cool pair of sunglasses for doing my census this year, too. Uh, <laughs> So they assigned the Maslach burnout inventory to half of the people who answered the census. And um, because of the weighted sampling, that represented all 2,300 urologists who completed the census. And what we found in 2016 was that 38.8% of urologists had burnout. When we looked at the population that correlated to the Mayo Clinic study, which was ages 29 to 65, the percent went down to 41%. So we still, I uh, went up, I'm sorry, to 41%. So urologists who are still practicing past the age of 65 have very low burnout rates. I guess that makes sense. If you could retire and you choose not to, you must really enjoy what you're doing. Um, 
on the census, we found that 17% was high for emotional exhaustion and 37% high for depersonalization. Just a note on that. You guys probably know about 8.5% of practicing urologists are women. And women doctors tend to score higher in emotional exhaustion, whereas male doctors tend to score higher in depersonalization when we look. So these numbers are pretty consistent with that. All right, so now you've all had a chance to do your Maslach burnout inventory. And now we're going to talk about how you're going to score it. All right, so for add each value of how often across the three domains. So if you look at this, your emotional exhaustion scores are questions 1, 2, 3, 6, 8, 13, 14, 16, and 20. Um, your depersonalization is 5, 10, 11, 15, and 22. And your personal accomplishment is 4, 7, 9, 12, 17, 18, 19, and 21. Alrighty, and what does your score mean? So when you add those up, if your emotional exhaustion is 27 or higher, you are burned out. If your depersonalization is 13 or higher, you are burned out. And if your personal accomplishment is, is low, below 31, you are suffering from burnout, okay? Your goal is not to be at zero for everything, right? You're not supposed to be perfect. This isn't a test where you can get 100, but if you're starting to see your numbers creep up, if you're feeling stressed at work, take the burnout inventory, see how you're doing, assess yourself, evaluate your career, evaluate what changes you could make that would make you happier. And um, for the first time ever, we actually got to teach a course at the AUA on burnout, that was on Friday. We're gonna apply next year, so if you're feeling burnt out, you can come take our course next year. Alrighty, and I'm gonna pass the microphone on, thank you. morning. It's really an honor to be here and especially to work with two women who um, I've, I met actually as a urologic fetus, both of these women, and they both greatly impacted me, although quietly through my career. So, and thank you to Dr. Sue and Stern for having me here. And thank you to all of you because I, I know for a fact that a lot of people in this audience only spent maybe two hours in their hotel room last night sleeping. So thanks for getting up early and being here. It's a pretty exhausting weekend for all of us. So before we get started, I want to talk to you a little bit about stress. Um, people that research stress know that there's sort of two different ways that we think about stress. There's sort of serial events, uh, which are like, you know, a tree falling on your house, right? And then there's something called persistent role strain. And most of the research around stress focuses on persistent role strain. These are things like living in poverty, uh, having sleep deprivation, uh, being displaced from your home, okay? And um, I don't think it's much of a stretch, and I'm sure it's very uh, evident to all of you that um, there are a lot of factors in being a resident that cause persistent role strain. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, when we think about burnout, we need to think about uh, what what are the things we can change? For sure, um, you know, being a resident, you're gonna be subjected to a pager on your hip 24 hours a day, or I don't know, maybe not 24 hours a day anymore, but um, some days 24 hours a day, and you're gonna be subjected to a lot of things that are not gonna be changeable about your work, okay, or your life. Um, and there are gonna be some things that are modifiable. And so I guess if there's one message you take home is that you are in control of a lot of things uh, having to do with the way that you interface with your work and your life, okay? 
And the, and the first step of really no, addressing burnout is sort of understanding when you're getting to that point that you need to do some work. And usually this uh, is evidenced, um, like some of the things that Amanda told you about, emotional exhaustion and those things, but those come out in very real ways. Trouble sleeping, using alcohol or drugs, uh, emotional changes, or in things that have to do with your environment, uh, like the, your relationships with people around you, um, being disorganized, or maybe even personal care, which is something that um, I will just tell you, those of us as staff notice and um, very much appreciate when you're, when, you're, when you're taking care of yourself personally. Um, and so you need to know that um, when you're having burnout, number one, it's gonna get better. This is not something that's like an endless pit of despair and you're never gonna come out of it. So the other thing is, is that everyone experiences this. So you, as a resident, you know, you have all these things that are pretty, pretty uh, stressful um, and are related to your job as a resident. You have a lot of control about where you go and what you do and what type of work you do. Those will change. Um, they won't go away, though. Uh, when you become a full-fledged urologist, you're going to trade off the stresses that you're trading in as a resident and get new ones. So this is gonna be something that you experience throughout your lives, even though those stressors will change. And the other thing you need to know is that there's help out there. So we're gonna talk a little bit um, about that. So um, my first message is that the, first, the sooner you recognize that you're in a place uh, where um, you know, you're feeling burned out, you need to recognize it and, st and, and stop it. And that's because if you're sort of, you know, tripping along this thing and you recognize here that you're in a bad place and make alterations so that you come up, you're going to end up not ending up down here, okay? This is an obvious thing that to anybody uh, who's done anything uh, related to, uh, to managing their lives, it, you know, it's, it's, it's obvious now, but it's not obvious when you're in it. And so I'm sorry for this slide, but I I had to put at least one of my intraoperative slides in this. So um, the first thing I need to tell you as a tool is you got to debride, okay? Debride the things that you don't need to do. And that's really hard to do when you're in a place where you're, you're not really able to sort of have the insight into what those things are. But I, I'm just offering some up to you. Social media. Social media can be a wonderful thing. It can also be a life suck, an emotional suck that you don't need, particularly when you're struggling, okay? Avoid workplace drama. I mean, we all get into it. It's sort of fun sometimes, but sitting in the resident room talking about how much you dislike this nurse or that nurse or this situation, it, it, can, it can be damaging and it can take away time and energy for you to work on making yourself better. Minimize contact with people who drag you down, okay? And it does help to organize your life because if you can put some structure around things that have become disorganized, at least when everything's foggy, you see the next place you need to go, okay? And get help, right? So there are resources out there, um, and that those aren't the same for all of us. Um, you know, I hope that you've all found mentors in your training. If you haven't, that should be a top priority. Um, and those don't have to be other urologists or staff members. They can be actually... How I got into physician wellness is I became mentored by one of the uh, infectious disease doctors who is um, head of physician health at the Cleveland Clinic, and she continues to be a mentor to me. Your program director or associate program directors or um, the uh, 
mandated employee assistance um, programs which should be in place for everybody that works at a university or an accredited program. Um, you may require medical inter intervention. So if you have coexistent depression or substance abuse that is tracking along with your burnout, um, that is something that you may need treatment for, okay? And that's not a failure. That's something that's gonna help you get out of it. And then obviously leaning on people like spouses, colleagues, spiritual leaders, workout, you know, personal trainers, whoever around you makes you feel good, uh, you need to find those people and surround yourself with them. So the last time I was like in a really bad place burned out, I, I met with my chair and I was like, you know, I'm in a bad place, I need to make some corrections. And he, this is what he said to me, you should take some time for yourself. And I was like, what the? I mean like, you know, when you're feeling like this, and somebody tells you to take time for yourself, that's just like such a shock to the system, right? Because you, you, you feel like you can't keep up with anything, right? But I think what he was trying to say is that unless you clear out the space to sort of um, make time to understand where you can make corrections, you're, you're not going to um, be able to get out of that uh, situation out of your burnout situation or correct uh, where you are and I, I love this slide this is actually a picture um, along my morning run so I think um, I see a lot of Cleveland people here and some people may recognize this this is a bridge across the lake uh, that I run around almost every morning and um, the morning I took this picture I was um, just really like in a bad place I was like sort of spitting nails you know running and thinking like oh yeah and um, the sun was rising over this lake. Usually it's dark, and so it was a little bit later, and it was heading into spring. And I took this picture as a reminder that, like, unless you are open to sort of seeing something that's different, and um, then you're not going to be able to uh, make that correction. So I actually, every morning when I, well, I don't run every morning, I'm going to be honest with you, but unless you're open to... Um, now when I run past this spot, I actually purposefully take time to think in that one moment it takes me, or three moments, it takes me to cross this lake about sort of where I am in my head and what I need to do uh, to, uh, to improve my, my, my life. The other thing is to connect with a meaningful, and I think this is the real thing. Like when, he, when my chair said, you need to take time for yourself, you know, and he was like, you know, take some time off, like whatever, you know. For me, it wasn't like going away on vacation, right? It was about taking time within my work to connect with the things that were meaningful, right? So um, you go into a patient's room, you pull out their JP, and you walk out. Why not take an extra three minutes to be with that patient, to have a conversation about what they're going through, to recognize that, um, that they are in, they're suffering, right, and to connect with the reason why everyone in this room became a doctor, okay? So that's, I mean, that's really the art of meaningful practice, right, is that, um, is that we are constantly called to do all these tasks, but we're not really, unless we're purposefully seeking it, we're not connecting with the meaning of our work in all, in, in all times. And when we become burned out, that's when we become disconnected with that. So it's taking the time to use those extra three minutes to cut out you know, the BS in the residence room so you can connect with your patients. And then I wanna to talk to you just a little bit about gratitude and gratitude practice, because I think that this is a technique that um, 
that people intuitively understand but don't consciously think about. So, you know, what is gratitude? Like, it's, it's just like, you know, pornography, like everybody knows it, but we don't have a definition for it. We sort of just know it when we see it. Um, but there have been, there's actually been quite a bit of literature that's looked at gratitude and gratitude practice and personal health. And, and this is just like one study I'm not going to really talk, talk about, but actually they quantified that um, the daily gratitude practice improves health. Uh, we know it improves um, cardiovascular physiology. Like there's a lot of stuff um, that gratitude practice um, improves. And, and, and practicing gratitude actually um, requires two things. It requires recognition that goodness has been bestowed upon us, and also recognition that there's an individual who has bestowed that to us. So it's something that's been given. And to practice, you actually have to reflect that back to the individual um, who, has, who has granted you uh, that gift. And so there's sort of two unique elements to gratitude practice. One that uh, we know through studies has, it, it improves personal health. The other is that it transfers positive energy. And I think that's really important in medicine when we are working in an environment where people around us are suffering. Our patients are suffering and our colleagues are suffering. And so when we practice gratitude, we benefit ourselves, but we also benefit our environment. And in other words, one plus one is, adds up to a lot more than two. And, and so to sort of think about that, I want to sort of talk to you about transfer of energy. And this is getting like really into some sort of touchy-feely stuff that I know you guys are all like uncomfortable with. I was too when I first started thinking about it. So there's sort of a limited number of ways that we as humans can transfer energy to other beings. One is through physical contact, and it can be positive or negative, as shown here. And the other is through um, expression. And so this is an example about how visual impression can transfer energy. And we do this every millisecond of every day, every way that we brow, you know, furrow our brow or look at someone, we are transferring energy from ourselves to other individuals. With expression, whether that's verbal or written, that is the, sort of the main vehicle that we transfer gratitude, okay? Um, and the gratitude requires expression. Like you can appreciate something, but to, be, to have gratitude, you need to express that to another individual. And so um, before, I, before I close, there's, there's a lot of other things um, in, this, in this area of mindful practice um, that I encourage you to explore. But if there's one thing you take away is to think about ways that you can embed uh, mindful practice into your daily routine. So, I mean, just as an example, one of the ways that I do it is on my morning commute in, I have this sort of long walk from my parking garage on this like long hallway of TVs. Um, and I use that time to actually purposefully do my gratitude practice on that walk, okay? Sometimes I write it down in my notes app on my, um, one of my notes apps on my um, phone, and sometimes I just think about it. But that, just that six minutes of, of actually programming that into my day actually helps me think about and reframe what's going on in my life, okay? So, um, I encourage you to sort of, if you want to take a picture of this slide or you want to just look online, I just want you to sort of think about uh, ways that you can do that little by little. It doesn't have to be all these things because you would never get to work if you did all these things, but just do one or two of them and then measure how it does for you, okay? Thank you very much. I'm going to take a very, very different tack to this whole subject and ask the question, as your boss, what's the organizational responsibility of me 
to keep you engaged. Why do I want to do that? Because I want you to be happy. So burnout is about 30 to 40 percent, okay? And as you take your, um, oh, actually I should make another, men another mention. When you take your burnout inventory, you've got three pages on the back that will allow you to, to determine what your emotional uh, and depersonalization scores are. So you, it's not like we have to put that slide back up again. You actually have the data here. Those numbers in terms of burnout, you know, high being greater than 27 on emotional exhaustion, et cetera, it's not important that you get one to zero, but it's also not important that you're 27 or 22 or 23. It's that those numbers are a way, you, it's a, a way to measure getting better, improving things, okay? So taking this over time will allow you to see whether or not your own interventions are actually making a difference. So I'm back to your employer again, okay? Well, burnout has a great impact on my bottom line at Mayo Clinic because we know at Mayo, at our research, that each one point increase in your burnout inventory means a 30 to 40% decrease in your work ethic over the next 24 months. You're gonna be less present if you're more burned out. That doesn't suit me well. Okay. Our CEO, John Noseworthy, I have tremendous amount of respect for him. I've known him for 20, 25 years now. And he actually said last year that our response to burnout is a moral and ethical imperative in terms of our ability to take care of our patients. We must respond to it. Now, there are two halves. We've talked so far about your responsibility for your own well-being. But the other responsibility is mine, or yours, if you happen to be the employer, or the chair, or the leader, or a decision maker, which I would hope you would be. But half is you and your beliefs. And honestly, I want you to recognize when it's you. I, for you know, a good 12 years, was having people coming to me in crisis and not realizing that it was them. The problem was them. Now, it's very true that there are dysfunctional types, and hopefully you don't have them in your residency, and hopefully you don't have them in your practices going forward, but 10% of the American population is sociopaths. 10% of the American population is narcissists. They're not going to change. If they're part of your group, you've got to be able to deal with it or walk away. But... If it's you and you've changed, you used to be calm, even maybe reserved, and now you're no longer civil. You're hollering, there's outbursts, you're emotionally unstable, I hate that person, I'm mad at them, there's always some drama going on. You're pessimistic, you're humorless, you don't even understand the jokes people are telling anymore. But a really telling thing, and what I saw very commonly, is the person who's really burned out. Nobody wants to work with them anymore. They avoid them. It's very telling. If you see people are trying to avoid you, not work as closely with you, they don't want to do research with you, they don't want to write papers with you, they don't want to go out to dinner with you. That alone leads to marked reductions in the productivity for the team for creativity, for problem solving, for my bottom line. So I want to take care of that. Now again, the culture of medicine 
Then again, saying half is, you know, half and half. It's not meant to be quantitative, it's qualitative. Half of it is you, half of it is the culture of medicine. The culture of medicine is a tremendous mess. Healthcare is no longer run by us. And a comment on this turmoil, we can much more easily bear the pain when we know the duration and the intensity of it. We can bear it when we know how long it's going to last and we know how much it's going to hurt. Well, guess what? That isn't medicine anymore and it's not gonna be medicine for the foreseeable future. A much more difficult world for us to live in. So where are the risk reduction opportunities? Individual well-being, actually we, at Mayo, we have a phenomenal Dan Abrams Healthy Living Center, and you can join up for about $8 a pay period and go over and use, you know, five floors of gym activities and wellness and yoga and, uh, Alexander techniques and a huge amount of weights and all sorts of stuff. But what are the organizational reduction opportunities? And it's not that they are in debate. We know what they are. First is workload. If you're chronically overloaded, not acutely, but that's a very big driver of, of burnout. So institutions should prioritize practice supports. Institutions should prioritize practice supports. We just took on EPIC. Really? At any rate, each practice has individualized needs. You have to individualize it for your individual practice. What does your practice need? Is it easier charting? Is it better schedulers? Is it transcription? Is it better billing? Is it nursing staff? And each one of those will add to the second driver, your efficiency. Now, work-life integration. Is there any such thing? No, there isn't. But you have to be aware that that's a balancing act going on all the time, every single day. Do you have a meaningful life outside of, your medicine, outside of medicine? Is work meaningful to you? Or have you gone down a little tiny rabbit hole and now you're just trying to finish this and finish that and finish this, but it really doesn't have much meaning to you? Because both of those things are very important drivers. Flexibility. We don't have a lot of flexibility. We don't have a lot of control. So you've got to get it where you can. Time to have lunch once in a while. Get to your kids' games. Keep your partnerships intact. Control. Control is very important. Do you know how often you're going to be on call or do you get laterally dumped on quite frequently? The less control you have, the more burnout you're going to have. And that's something as an institution that I can really support you on. But I'm going to add two more that don't get mentioned too often. And I think the reason that they don't get mentioned too often is that those people who are treated fair and equitably, as we are for the most part at Mayo Clinic, don't realize when you're not being treated fair and equitably because we're not living in that environment. But there is no doubt that fairness and equity are a rare commodity in many workplaces. So you need to evaluate for that. And the last thing, and you need to know this, Crises are going to happen in your own personal lives. They just will. Your institution, your organization should be able to provide you resources for support and for referral. Now, it might be if you're in a small group, if you're in a small place, it's going to be just a network of friends that, whom you trust. Okay? It may be that the organization actually has a large office, like my office of staff services, where I can provide those, those assistance to you. But look for those things. Know where they are, 
so that you can give them to a friend who needs them or you can, you can use them as for your own opportunity as, as things arise. And remember, you need to support others as the tables turn. The other half is the culture of medicine. Again, there are going to be toxic people in your workplace. Every culture, every workplace you're in has a culture. Identify that culture. Because if you, again, if you work with other people, you're going to find that there are toxic people in your, work, in your workplace. And how do you recognize them? Well, I'm going to give you this little acronym for help in terms of recognizing a toxic environment. You guys finish residency, you go into a new job, you know, whatever. How do you figure out, whoa, this is really not the place for me? If you use the acronym rumbling, that's very helpful. So the misery quotient. What's the misery quotient? Your colleagues are miserable. You're miserable. Your life outside of work is miserable. There's a lack of interaction with your colleagues as everybody is shielding themselves from the toxic environment. There's no praise for hard work, nor persistence or help from others during difficult events. If there's bias in your work group, clear evidence and bias, and I'll talk about that in a second as well. If there's a lack of respect, it's an abusive relationship, there's bullying, there's backbiting, there's a lack of transparency. Don't ever tell anybody else what you make. Why? Don't ever discuss your salary. Why? Don't ever discuss your work hours. Why? Um, you're feeling left out. You have the sense that you're feeling left out. If the rules are inconsistent, for example, the characteristics of the boss or the, or the major clique, those rules don't really apply to them. They get away with a lot. There's no agreement. There's no um, allowance for disagreements or divergent opinions. You may have a petty tyrant who's your boss. Um, you may have a Grinch. You may have an Eeyore, um, very sad guy. Okay. In another uh, one you should really know about too, I'll speak about this again, is if there's no growth potential. Your work should facilitate your work, your employer, the people you work for, and if you're the leader, make sure that you incorporate this, should ensure your growth over time. Now, I'm not invested in the first six months or the first two years. I'm invested in you over, my, over your entire career. That means I want to facilitate you learning new skills, but perhaps you're set up for failure. And if you're set up for failure, you really need to think about getting out of that evaluation. And then there also is your gut, okay? It's not your values. This is not a group that's playing according to your values. There are bad behaviors going on. You're disengaging. They're sociopaths, and they're not ever going to change. Here's a good way to look at bias. Okay, so there may be a quality within a particular group. That means everybody gets the same kind of stand to, you know, reach for the apples. But what equity means is that I provide the additional supports that are needed to individualize your success. A very different thing. So equality, yeah, 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 yeah. We, you know, we have 50% of us are women. That is not equity. And equity is the bottom line of what you need. Bias. Okay, so wow, you suck at math. Wow, girls suck at math. Okay, so. You're not going to usually hear this conversation being said directly to you. Wow, you really suck as a surgeon. Wow, girls really suck at surgeons. They should just stay home and take care of kids. Or whatever the bias is. I'm just using a very obvious one. 
But what you will hear is trash talk about others. So they're not going to just be trashing you and you won't hear it. They'll be trashing others and you'll know that that's also going on behind your back or likely to be so. Again, no growth potential. You're set up for failure. How do you know that? How do you recognize that? There's no time for lifelong learning. Yep. You can go to the AUA if you want to, but you're going to do it out of vacation pay. <clears throat> There's no remunerative, you're in a non-remunerative patients, the patients nobody else wants to see in a fee-for-service partnership. Okay, so your fee-for-service, that's going to be, determine how you get to be partner, but you're going to be seeing all the patients that nobody else wants to see. You're going to be seeing the unvalued patients. You're going to be seeing the diseases that nobody likes. The time boundaries are going to be unequal. As soon as you join the group, they're going to give you all the call for the next six months. Um, you're going to have to do the travel to the undesirable outreach facilities. The bottom line is that there's competitive conflict within your group with your colleagues. Everybody's scrabbling to get to the top of the heap. No growth potential. You're set up for failure. It's also true that if you're in a work environment where there's a tremendous amount of psychological stress, you face at least twice the risk of cardiovascular disease. You face a larger risk of many other diseases as well. Again, I've said this enough, sociopaths don't change, just don't trust them. All of us will have acute crises in our, in our lives, but it's the, really the chronic ones that really take their toll. If they're chronic, what are our responses? Shielding is appropriate, it's a help, healthy response, but too much shielding means to isolation, and everybody's walking around like in, the, in their suit of armor. If it's chronic, remember, it is your responsibility, being healthy, to support others. I will also tell you, if there's an inequity within the group or the, wherever you happen to be, confront it as a team. Do not go it alone. The person who goes up and says, this is an area of discrimination, this is an area of bias, this is an area of, of uh, blindness within our group practice, is going to be punished. Go as a team. This is a common problem for all of our group. We've all discussed it. Let's put our numbers, let's put our, our talk together and present it as a team. Plan your exit. Plan your exit. Even if you never use your exit, if you're in, an, in a work environment where there's some significant toxicity, make sure you plan your exit. One of the things I did most commonly is say to people, you know, well, maybe Mayo Clinic isn't a good fit for you. Where's your CV? Think about some other things. And always leave on the high road, even if you don't think the place really was very good. Don't say it. Leave on the high road. Um, and if there is um, somebody in your work area that's really Joe Cool, all right, and they share your values, go to them and ask them, well, how the hell are you doing it in this environment? You, you look like you're doing great. What are you doing? Well, I did that once in my career a few years ago. And forget where I work for a second. Um, and the guy who was asking, Joe Cool, how do you do this, said to me, he says, well, you know what? I just don't care. That's not a good answer, okay? Um, so again, it should be somebody, it should be Joe Cool who actually shares your values. So once again, where are the risk opportunities for me as your employer, honestly, I should be looking at your workload. I should make sure you are as efficient as possible. 
that you maintain your work-life integration to some degree, that the work I give you is meaningful, that I'm not giving you a whole bunch of ridiculous tasks that don't provide value to you nor to your patients, that within the boundaries of what American medicine is right now, that we give you some degree of flexibility, some degree of control. As a baseline, your work area should be fair and equitable, and there should be workplace resources in place, particularly at times at the inevitable crises. So I'm just going to leave you with this one story. Many of you I know have already heard this story, but I want you to hear it one more time if you haven't. So a Cherokee elder is giving advice to his grandson, and as the grandfather announces that there's a fight going on inside him, indeed there's a fight going on inside everyone all the time, a terrible battle between these two wolves. And one is angry and snarly and cynicism and arrogant and carries lots of grudges and hates and resentments and he's very miserly. The other is joyful and happy and serene, grateful, compassionate, at peace with himself. And these people, these wolves, exist in, within each one of us. And so the child's wi eyes widen, and he says, but grandfather, which one of these wolves will win? Well, it's very simple, the one you feed. So feed yourself with compassion and gratitude. Look at your practices, the culture that you're in, and make sure that these are healthy environments that are going to support your growth, because without supporting your growth, you're never going to be a physician, uh, an effective urologist and physician. So thanks. Thank you very much to each of you for highlighting what I think is a timely, relevant, and under-addressed topic. We're glad to be able to put burnout and wellness in the spotlight this year at the Residence Forum. You know, sometimes it's easier for us to recognize some of the symptoms and problems that we talked about in others, not necessarily in ourselves, perhaps our co-residents, our junior residents, our medical students even, or our supervisors, our attendings, and other staff members. When we see someone who may be in crisis, how is it that we can best facilitate their getting help or their recognition that they may be having burnout symptoms? How do we be supports for each other? That's an outstanding question because um, you can't, you can lead a horse to water, uh, unfortunately, and that's not, and that's about all you can do. Um, being a friend, asking them, you know, are you okay? And giving them an example, I, I saw you were a little short with that particular person or, you know, I, you know, okay, at Mayo, we do occasionally have lawsuits. We reach out to every single physician who's named in a malpractice lawsuit to offer them supports because we know that's a crisis time. So somebody in your group who's not doing well in the residency program, who's having, you know, trauma in their personal lives, they've just had a miscarriage, they're getting divorced, you know, their in-service scores were horrible, whatever it was, to reach out to them and say, you know, is there anything I can do to help you? Dr. Wood? I think the other thing is just to let them know what they, because a big component of burnout is feeling de devalued or uh, that, you, that you're not effective. And so a big part of that is if, if you have a colleague that you think is awesome and is struggling, just let them know that, you, you know, 
you're you think they're awesome. Yeah, you think they're yeah. awesome or whatever. Yeah. You know, just to hear that, I think a lot of people need to hear that when they're when when the the conversation inside their head is how much they suck, right? That's what happens when you're when you're burned out. Yeah, and especially from above. Yeah, so you don't hear the good stuff. Special thanks to Drs. North, Wood, and Leitner, and to the AUA Residents and Fellows Committee for organizing the forum. For more information about our committee, you can visit us on the AUA website at auanet.org.